You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is August 10th, 2023 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I thought that we would talk a little bit more about view or mind states uh, tonight, and also the relationship to conceptual reality and to the nature of how conditioning affects the appearance of things so that we can move out of the conditioned response to everything and begin to inhabit the actual conditions of the present moment and all of the possibilities that open up in the present moment rather than uh, the conditioned response. One of the things that I, I've been talking to people about lately in, in my work in attachment is the nature of uh, the appearance of things and how uh, attachment orientation, when it's activated, distorts the perception of things and creates these realities that we then uh, engage as if that's what's actually happening. And because the attachment conditioning comes online ahead of autobiographical memory and the idea of uh, the self navigating the world, we often uh, are blind to see these mind states, uh, in particular the attachment mind states as they arise. Christian. George, you described the the like feeling states as being very like subjective, like being essentially given to you by your family. Right. No like objective feeling state necessarily. Do you see the mind states as a similar thing um because like i i guess because there's like the brahma viharas which are specific mind states and so like what's the relation between the sort of objective this is written down in a sutra or something nature of that and what people are experiencing and also i guess maybe similarly for a secure mind state well Paul Eckhart would say that there are seven universal emotions and everything else is a mixture of those. So anger, fear, sadness, excitement. Uh, anger, fear, sadness, disgust, contempt, surprise, and happiness are the seven that he thinks of. And then we uh, relate to those uh, within our family systems and also the value of them uh, in the family systems varies on and how the, the the family holds them. In some family systems, of course, ex angry expressions don't have a lot of value. And in, and in some family systems, because they're so unusual, they, they have more value. In family systems where kindness is completely ordinary, like air or water, it doesn't have a lot of value. And in, in family systems where uh, kindness is a rarity, they take on a high value. So there's a, a lot of ways that uh, 
we we are conditioned around particular emotional states and and their meaning. Um, so, can you say a little bit more about what you're interested in knowing about the other states? I'm, I guess I'm interested in, like, in in emotions. It seems like they're in my body. I can find them. Their sensation, and there maybe is there maybe is some objective or like natural kinds or something like that Eckhart talks about. Um, but for mind states, um, I guess I have to interact with them through the physical world, but they're more disembodied. And so if they're views, um, like, can they be described in a similar way as the emotions where like, there are natural kinds, right? You might, you can find the emotions or Eckhart thinks that you can find these seven basic ones and they seem more material. But the mind states, if they're views, that seems more abstract to me. And so uh, I guess, how can we all get on the same page of saying this is, this is, this is the experience we're having. It seems like that's more available for the emotions than for the mind states. Does that make sense? Well, maybe, uh, you know, dismissing people suppress awareness of their emotions so they experience sensations in the body that you might attribute as emotional in nature, but they would not attribute them as emotional in nature. They would attribute them as physical in nature. Uh, so that the capacity to perceive and create reality is really unlimited in that way. Views don't have a physical quality to them, they're, they're a pattern of the way that things are distorted. So we recognize patterns in the same way that we would recognize a pattern of sensation in, in, in the body, which is a response to the conditions in the present moment of the body preparing to take an action. So for instance, if the body were preparing to fight, the blood would rush into the uh, upper body, into the arms, there would be adrenaline, noradrenaline, there would be endorphins. Uh, all of that would be uh, a, a movement of the body to defend itself. Uh, and then we would recognize that pattern and call it something. If the mind were fearful and it was going to flee, then all the blood would rush to the legs. You'd have a blast, this different blasts of adrenaline, noradrenaline, endorphins. Uh, and you would, and, and that would move the body. So then we would recognize fear as this rush of of resources uh, to the legs for fleeing, and the the numbness that comes from the endorphins, so that we don't feel pain as we're moving. That's fear as the emotion, or as the mind state, or the emotion. That well, the sensations in the body are are. Uh, the movement that the body is getting ready to take, and then that pattern of sensation is something that we recognize and then assign a name to. Is that making sense? So in the, 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 the mapping of the Finnish study, if you look at the 40 emotions that are laid out there, they're looking at the patterns of sensation that happen in the body as the body prepares to take action and they're mapped out 
And then depending on what your family system called them, you would have a sense of them. Um, and they've, you know, they've mapped out breathing, they've mapped out smelling, winning, sleeping, hunger, all of those different things have different patterns of sensation, which people uh, understand. And because that pattern of sensation is happening, uh, they have a sense of having a cold or uh, being thirsty in addition to the sense of joy or peace. But with mind states, you know, the Buddha used that metaphor of the mirror, which I quite like. I'm sure you've heard it from me, if not other places. Uh, a mirror 2,500 years ago was a bowl of water. And if the water were still and clear, the reflection off the surface of the water acting as the mirror would create a representation of what, what you were seeing through the reflection. And... Uh, so the metaphor, of course, is that we don't experience anything directly. We experience it as a reflection of the mind. And so what we're attempting to do is track what that, uh, the quality of the mind is so that we can understand whether we're getting a fairly accurate representation of what's happening or whether it's distorted by the quality of the mind. If the mind is equanimous, it's as if the water were still and clear and so that you have this reflection, which is fairly accurate in terms of what we can know about things. If you recall, the spectrum of light is vast and we see a tiny sliver of it. The spectrum of sound is vast and we hear a tiny sliver of it. The temperature ranges that uh, are uh, present are vast and we can inhabit only a tiny sliver of it. So the, the way that we can uh, know that is it you you spensky do you know you spensky the philosopher when we were in high school and reading him we were fascinated by his description of uh, uh imagine if you were a creature and you existed between the air and the water and so that when somebody got into the water you would notice these changing diameters of two legs then into one big leg, and then you'd have two small circles next to the big circle. And then as it got up to the body, it would turn into a big oval that would then shrink and then get a little bit wider because you were only able to track the sl a sliver of a two-dimensional view of the thing that's happening. And then you have the metaphor of the wise man examining the uh, elephant, you know that story? The blind wise men are asked to describe an elephant and one of them takes the trunk and says that it's like a hose and one of them takes the leg, says it's like a tree and one of them takes the tail and says it's like a rope and one of them takes the ear and said it's like a sheet of leather. And one of them um, takes the side of the elephant and said uh, it's like a wall all of the descriptions being true, of course, but um, not the whole picture. Uh, 
George, and so I, uh, why do you think they never talk about the sixth guy that grabbed the elephant's penis? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Seems like there's something missing in the story. You have the capacity to sense, and depending on what that capacity is, of course, you collect data. You don't uh, collect all the data that's present. You just collect this highly curated uh, uh, data that you prefer to collect. All of this, of course, is automatic and unconscious. The mind moves from object to object based on a preference for that those objects. We're entering into an environment that is filled with objects that we enjoy then that it seems like a rich and interesting environment and if we uh, walk into an environment where the stuff we prefer is absence we tend to think of it as barren or empty in a bad way um and then we assign meaning to all of these sensing moments these mind moments based on our conditioning or if we encounter something that's unique uh, our imagination uh, attaches a meaning to it, and then that rolls into, fixates into uh, conceptual reality. We attach to the undifferentiated sensing experiences, means and make it into something. Between ultimate reality, the pure sensing data, and the conceptual reality we make is where the view happens. But we've been doing that and making that view before the beginning of uh, autobiographical memory, before there was the capacity to reflect on that process, which is one of the reasons it's so difficult to see it. So that very early conditioning, which is infused into the representations of conceptual reality now, are very hard to spot because they've always been there. We might think that that's a neutral representation of how it is, even though it's not, and it's a, it's a constant distortion. In the adult attachment interview, we track different things. We... Um, Let me pull one up so that I I, I am um, more likely to be accurate in my representation. So we track for experiences and we track for states of mind. Uh, the rejecting uh, experiences of rejection, experiences of involving a role reversing, experiences of pressure to achieve, experiences of neglect, and experiences of loving. And I think that each of these creates a view. If you if you experience a childhood where there's a lot of rejection in it, you begin to create these realities where you're anticipating rejection. If you have the experiences in childhood 
of being involved in the mindsets of your caregivers, of the role between parent and child being reversed, you have a way of creating reality where that's a necessity in it. Um, if you were neglected, you create uh, a realities where there's an expectation of neglect. If you uh, uh, conversely had high uh, loving experiences in childhood, you tend to create an inv a, a reality where there's an expectation of loving responses to you and what you do. We talk about idealizing where you create these very rosy, idealized versions of reality, but don't have much evidence in the way of backing them up. But that part you don't pay attention to. Involving anger is where these intrusions of anger arise. And so when we create reality, it's filled with these uh, episodes which we interpret as triggering, which create these bursts of uh, anger. If we have uh, a derogating mindset, we tend to devalue or diminish uh, other people, other events. So whereas the Buddha described understanding whether the mind is equanimous or whether the mind is filled with lust, which would mean that the water of the, the bowl, uh, the bowl of water would be dyed a bright color so that the surface of the mirror uh, the surface of the mind would infuse into the creation of reality this very colorful, bright uh, experience. Have you ever uh, looked across the room and see, uh, saw somebody who just lit you up in the way that they appear to you? And then a few months later, you see them in a more uh, reasonable light and they don't have those qualities. That's a very typical thing about the lust mind. The anger mind is, of course, as if the water were boiling. It's very distorted. When you're in that moment of anger and reacting to it, you can cause harm that, that's hard to repair when the mind settles and is no longer angry and sees it in a different way. Christian? So then, I guess to sort of use the metaphor of the, of the bowl, um like i've done i've had it in meta practice where i notice like i'm in a meta mind and then i notice sadness through that lens or I notice anger through that lens and it it gives me a bit of distance from it uh where i can kind of watch it and it's it's nice um and i'm curious about how you might speak to that kind of experience of like uh viewing anger through the meta mind versus viewing anger through an angry mind state and and what what that might mean to view anger through an angry mind state like just to just to sort of i guess compare or contrast again the the mind state versus the emotion of the same concept so when you're holding the view of loving kindness you see the world in a particularly positive way it's it's cool, so the heat of anger is less uh, troubling. Uh, there's an absence of desire, an absence of the heat of anger from frustrated desire. Uh, it's kind. Kindness is this uh, consideration and care without the expectation of return. Open, an absence of the heat of rejection. Friendly. Friendly is this 
non-harming stance. And curious, I think, is another way to think about it. It's this exuberance in finding out things about somebody else. All of those come together to form this view so that when the anger experience arises, either in yourself or in someone else, there's no identification with it. There's no belief that that's actually an accurate representation of what's happening or that it needs to be acted on. There's a curiosity and openness to it. When you get into an angry view, the capacity to mentalize uh, 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 the accuracy of the perception is lost. And the view presents itself as if this is actually what's happening. This is an actually accurate view and an actionable view. And so then you then form an intention and take an action in response to that with no spaciousness around it to see that there may be a distortion or that there's the possibility of a different kind of interpretation, a different uh, reality that could be generated in a minute or uh, in the next cycle of generation. So uh, that tends to be an encapsulating uh, reified experience when the anger mind is there. And then there's no, uh, um, or often little uh, inhibition in in taking act, actions that you feel are justified. And then when the anger mind dissipates and the mind is in a different view, those same situations appear differently. And then you might be able to recognize uh, in those moments that the view was distorted and actually you weren't entitled to the, the reactivity that you took. And then you're in a position of having to try and repair that. Uh, you know, one or two bursts of anger and you'll so frighten somebody else that they'll never be able to settle with you again. Uh, and so that it, it can be extremely harmful, not only to another person, but also to you and and your your the quality of your relationships. Big angry self, of course, ex, uh, can ex, just expand at such an amazing pace, just be there. And it's and very compelling. And so part of this process of working with views or mindsets is to recognize the shift from one view into another so that you can take steps to at least uh, suppress the the action in the world so that you don't create the, the, the karma of an angry experience. But what I think is also important to begin to do to expand this beyond the um, hindrances um, and include the attachment representations. So uh, Harley is saying anger mind appears for me when I hear narcissists expressing themselves, but it's a big angry self seeing that. Yeah, There's an explosion of uh, a conditioned response to that kind of action, that kind of presentation which comes from that deep conditioning so that one 
could begin to identify that view of anger uh, and to begin to understand the, the nature of it as it arises. Uh, and also to see through it so that there isn't the need to actually react. Um, meta mind, of course, or loving kindness mind is the antidote to anger. When you notice the anger mind arising, you want to intentionally replace it with a loving kindness mind, that openness, that uh, non harming stance. And the far enemy of compassion is cruelty, so that when you notice the cruel mind arising, you move into a compassionate stance. Uh, envy and jealousy are the far enemy of sympathetic joy, and so when you notice envy and jealousy arising, you move into the sympathetic joy practice. And um, when you notice craving, aversion, and unconsciousness arising, you move into uh, bringing up the mind state of equanimity. But when you begin to uh, understand your attachment conditioning and you notice the mind states of the uh, attachment conditioning arising, you notice the dismissing mind arising or the preoccupied mind arising or the disorganized mind arising, you recognize it and then figure out what the antidotes are to that so that you can then shift into the mind state that is uh, going to free you up of that, free you up of the mind state that, that's uh, in uh, corrupting the perception of what's happening in an afflictive way. You might say that the divine abodes are distorting, but they distort in a beneficial way. Um, so part of this, of course, is knowing when the mind is equanimous and not distorted, but also recognizing that there are certain distortions that can be useful and certain ones that are harmful, and then direct the mind toward the beneficial ways of being. I think one of the, the challenges of the attachment mind states when they arise is that they're so subtle and they're so woven into the basis of uh, the reality experiences that you have that it's very hard to notice them. And so it's it's important to begin to intentionally pay attention to the way that they affect things so that you can root them out. The Thing about views uh, or limiting views might be a way of talking about it is that they distort your perception of what's possible in the present moment. So in each moment, what opens up is the entire range of possibilities that you could choose from. And if the mind is clear and equanimous, you can see them in time to choose the one that would be the most beneficial for you in that moment. And if the mind is distorted by a particular view, you don't see all of the possibilities in front of you. You see the possibilities that you're conditioned to see. If you're in a dismissing mind state, only the things that uh, 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 are representable in a dismissing mind state appear. And because we get into these ruts of habit where we think that the outcomes are 
that certain outcomes are possible for us and other outcomes are not possible for us. We uh, shrink them down to a very limited, limited range, often of things that we've experienced over and over again. If we slip completely out of the present moment into the view, we're no longer experiencing what's there. We're experiencing what uh, our, what has happened to us before and choosing the outcome that uh, we've already experienced again. And this, in a sense, uh, reinforces the perception that that uh, the choices we have are are limited. So I think that this is one of the reasons why we spend so much attention on really beginning to understand and deconstruct view uh, or or mind states. Um, you know, dismantling conceptual reality as we create it and touching back into the ultimate reality to make sure that there's a reasonable match to what we make out of the things that we sense. We go back into the environment and resurvey to make sure that we haven't uh, taken a very slanted survey of what's in front of us and uh, use that uh, as the basis of what's what we think is happening, and then also opening to the possibility of actively inquiring of the people that you're engaged with what their experience is of what's happening so that you have a different perspective. Their conditioning is different. Their, uh, the, the reality that they're going to create is going to be different because their conditioning is different. And in an authentic expression, of what your reality is and an authentic expression of what their reality is. You have a broader perception of what's actually happening than if you rely uh, exclusively on your own conditioned responses. We don't... Uh, most of us do not create these very elaborate ways of working with uh, our experiences. When you look at the way that we regulate emotions, we often have uh, a few narratives that uh, generate the sadness, for instance, if we use sadness as a regulator. We have a few narratives that generate anger if we use anger as a, uh, a regulating strategy. Um, Maybe we use a positive strategy and we have a few narratives that tend to generate those positive narratives, those positive regulating emotional experiences. But uh, we aren't meant to be solo. We aren't meant to be auto-regulating. We aren't meant to be so good at managing ourselves that we never need to really interact with other people. We are built in the biology of the human body to be in complex social groups uh, where we can express ourselves authentically and have the joyfulness of being seen and known and understood. Um, people who grow up to be dismissing grow up in environments where they're highly neglected and often uh, rejected. And so uh, 
they never develop an understanding or a, a capacity really to turn toward other people for emotional regulation. They tend to withdraw into themselves and auto-regulate. So part of the understanding of that dismissing view is uh, translating the uh, impulse to withdraw into yourself as a need to emotionally regulate uh, an, an experience that is uh, exceeding your capacity and then reorienting toward other people and allowing them to help you regulate. That's the path out of that. Preoccupied people uh, have the experience of chaotic childhoods where it's very unpredictable what care they can get. And it's very uh, unpredictable how they should elicit that care. And so when they get dysregulated, they're used to having somebody else uh, regulate them, but it's never reliable enough that they can really learn it as a system that they might carry out with themselves. And because their caregivers are so unpredictable, they don't really learn to explore because they can't separate from their regulator because the regulator is too unreliable. Only in people who have a sense of native attachment security, uh, where they have a predictable enough environment that they can make sense out of the way that the caregiver comes to them and helps them emotionally regulate, uh, interject strategies uh, that are uh, regulating, but at but also understand that when they can't regulate themselves, they need to turn to somebody who will help them. So when we talk about the self-mastery of secure functioning, what we're talking about is somebody who's very good at regulating their emotional states, um, even brilliant at regulating their emotional states, but also understand that it's perfectly ordinary to get so dysregulated that you can't regulate yourself and then have put in the time, energy, and resources to gather around them a group of people that they can turn to who will help them regulate that's in place and reliable. That's the, the nature of that self-mastery, both being good at doing it yourself and also being good at putting around yourself a social network that's regulating. And uh, there's less need in that group to see these early conditioned responses that create and infuse into the nature of conceptual reality because they're beneficial distortions that are built in for them that, that actually produce a good effect. It's only in, in the insecure and disorganized views where we really need to begin to uh, deconstruct these uh, conceptions of ourselves and the world so that we can reorient them in a way that uh, is useful to us. If you can't regulate yourself well enough and you don't have a group of people around you, what ends up happening is you begin to limit the risks you take in your exploration so that you don't uh, destabilize yourself, you don't dysregulate yourself. And it's very easy, particularly as you age, uh, to restrict more and more the, the, development, uh, the development of your exploration 
to the point that it's not satisfying enough. It's not meaningful enough. And then we despair in the difficulty of the human life, the, the human condition, because we're not finding enough meaning. So secure people tend to be oriented around finding meaning and building social groups that support the pursuit of that. Dismissing people tend to keep their the most meaningful explorations completely secret and hidden. And they tend to be oriented around the gathering of time, energy, and resources that they can use to transact relationships. Secure functioning relationships are collaborative. Insecure and disorganized relationships tend to be transactional. Uh, dismissing people don't want to share the things that are the most meaningful to them because their experiences of childhood were filled with rejection. They don't want those things threatened or rejected. They, they protect them. But then it's very hard to elicit help from people and support from people when you need it so that you can pursue it uh, more vigorously. So the, 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 the way that that changes is the, the risk of rejection in expressing them to other people but hopefully picking people that don't reject, but instead support and encourage. Because the chaotic nature of the, the early lives of preoccupied people and the, the lack of reliability in uh, the emotional care that they receive, they tend to inhibit their exploration very early uh, to the point that it really never gets developed very well. They tend to latch on to other people's exploration and attempt to find meaning in that. Um, but there's a lot of dissatisfaction in that. The harder part for preoccupied people to come out of that is to develop the capacity to explore and then to understand uh, through exploration what's actually meaningful to them. But the view that arises uh, is one of helplessness. It's one of, of uh, fearfulness around exploring. So we need to recognize that when that view arises, that fearfulness uh, arises in the way that the world appears to us, that it, it's the preoccupied mind arising, the preoccupied view arising, and that the world may not be limiting It's harder for disorganized people because disorganized people have experienced uh, abuse or trauma of some kind that has created a, a distortion in the way that they perceive things. But they're not frightened that the world is dangerous. They're frightened that the world is benevolent and out to get them. And if they don't act in a, in a, in a perfect way, that they're under threat of significant harm, which is a different level of fearfulness, a different level of inhibition. Uh, it's easy to assign then uh, motivations to people that are nefarious, uh, even though a secure person or uh, an organized insecure person wouldn't recognize that. And so, 
the understanding for disorganized people is to begin to recognize the the way that that uh, anticipation of harm filters into everything and, and, and distorts it so that you can see more clearly who is uh, capable of harming and who isn't. Not everybody is a perpetrator. Not everyone is uh, exploitive. Not everyone is untrustworthy, which is hard in the beginning for a disorganized person. One of the reasons I like to talk about the attachment views uh, in this Buddhist context is so that we can begin to uh, track them. It's easier to recognize signs if you know what they say, right? Uh, I often use the metaphor of uh, the south of France. When I was uh, hitching around Europe in the in the early 70s, uh, backpacking, Every small town you got to in Paris, uh, in the south of France, had a big sign that had an arrow that was pointing to Paris. And it, would, it said Paris with the arrow pointing. But if you didn't know how to read the signs, of course, uh, you might think that you could just follow each of those signs to Paris, but you would just keep going in circles in the south of France and never really make any progress toward Paris until you noticed that there were three different sizes of signs and three different colors of signs uh, and that you needed to you needed to follow the same sign the same series of signs to actually get to where you were going and not jump from sign to sign to sign uh-huh christian you know they did that to confuse the germans <laughs> did they I have no idea. <laughs> the uh, they never really unified everything. Uh, they have, you know, what is it? Seven police forces. We have a few police forces too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, county police, local police, city police. Um. But each one of those set of signs is one different uh, uh, dimension of government making the labels. So um, my metaphor here is that it's useful to recognize these things beyond the poetry of the Buddha. I like the descriptions and the poetry of the Buddha, but I also like the practicality of understanding the effects of conditioning in these the attachment frame and then really um, sensitizing yourself to the nature of the experience of it arising so that you know that if the view of the preoccupied mind is what you're experiencing, the attachment system is active, the exploration system is off, and you need to seek proximity to somebody who will help you emotionally regulate because you can't regulate yourself if the view is active. Is that making sense? And so that it 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 uh, creates an understanding of what's actually happening in the present moment, and then also what to do about it, so that you can come back into a place of equanimity. Um, I think that's an, enough jabbering. Why don't we do some loving kindness practice? 
Any comments or questions about that practice? So Saturday, we're starting a new level one. If you want to come, it's four Saturdays in a row from 9 to 1.15. I'm going to be teaching with Zach Oldenburg on the first and third, and then Ms. Stas Fedicin on the uh, second and fourth, uh, unless uh, um, the baby comes, in which case somebody else will be on the fourth. <laughs> uh, if you haven't done a level one and you're interested in the attachment material, come along. That's a good way uh, to, to learn it. Uh, what else is happening? Another level two is coming up. I'm going to do a class called uh, How to Give the Adult Attachment Interview if you're interested in understanding how attachment systems are assessed or you think you might be uh, interested in learning how to do that. That's coming up after the the level one. Um, and we have, we're, we're, we're in the process of changing. So uh, I think that the way we're figuring it out is we're going to, we're going to start uh, pushing them out a little bit into the, uh, in October, uh, we're going to do a, a level zero, which is a, a very short introduction to the um, attachment material in an hour and a half or an hour. And that will be on Friday evenings. At least that's the way the conversation is going now. So that's a little bit different. Anyway, most of the stuff is uh, that we have already set is uh, on the website. Take a look. Uh, I offer this teaching freely, uh, but I do hope that if you can, you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website to do that. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that we're doing. Thank you for your practice, and I look forward to seeing you again. Bye.